Amen. Well, I love the words of that song because they speak about confession. They speak about repentance. God, I want you to give me clean hands. And what we're going to find uh, today in Ezekiel is Ezekiel is going to call all of us to that type of repentance, to that type of reminder of what it means to not give our hearts to anyone except the one which has redeemed us as well. Have you ever tried to warn somebody the way Ezekiel does? Or have you ever had somebody try and warn you of danger that's coming? Maybe a financial advisor warned somebody, hey, I know it looks tough, don't pull your money out now. Or maybe you're advising somebody else and you're saying, hey, I really think you're biting off more than you can chew with that purchase. I'm not saying you can't do it, but the stress it's going to put on your work schedule, you might not want to do that here at this time. And how, in general, do people respond to warnings? Oh, come on, you don't understand, I'll be fine, right? Usually we ignore warnings. We say something like, not me, doesn't apply to me. I remember uh, dear friends that I got a chance to uh, perform their wedding ceremony, and about six months into their marriage, he owned a multi-million dollar business, and they've been friends for many, many years, but found out probably about three, four months into their marriage that he had a severe cocaine addiction that was slowly taking over his life that she'd never seen before. And I remember that moment that she was not a follower of Jesus. She was in our house one day. We're sort of walking her through the Bible for the first time. And, and uh, I remember sitting down with the wife, the sister of the, of the husband, and the mother of the husband to confront him. He'd been stealing money and selling all the equipment for the business to feed this ongoing addiction. And I remember just pleading with him, come on, warning, 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 things are going to, you think they're bad now, they're going to get even worse. Whether it's money, whether it's moral decisions, whether it's with your kids, you're saying, hey, listen, I've been down this path before, I've seen this, I, I want to help you in this situation, right? You care enough about the person to try and warn them before they face the consequences of the pain to come. Now, growing up, if you were driving your car... One of the funny things about not having GPS is that you've been driving your car, and if you missed a turn, you're usually getting yelled at by your spouse or yelled at by your kids. Before you had recalculating, you had, hey, you missed it! And so sometimes it would be nice to say you need to take a U-turn, but we always said, you got to pull a U-E. That was sort of our phrase we used all the time. you got to pull a U-E here. And so, oh, you missed it, you got to pull a U-E. And in one sense, that's what Ezekiel's going to say. He's going to say, listen, I'm trying to warn you. you got to pull a U-E right now. Because if you don't pull a U.E. right now to turn back God's way, and that's what repentance really is, it's, it's pulling a U.E. If you don't pull a U.E. right now, you're going to pull your hair out later. And God, again, uses Ezekiel as a visual aid to describe that. And whether you're a boss, whether you're a friend, whether you're a parent or grandparent, we all know the challenge of trying to convince, trying to persuade, trying to warn somebody, pull a U.E. now or you're going to pull your hair out later. And he's going to mean this figuratively and literally, as you'll see in a moment. He's going to talk about the how, the why, and the what of pulling the U.E. He begins with, let me describe how you're going to pull your hair out later. So that you'll be motivated to pull that U-turn right now. And God, again, pulls out visual aid teaching method in chapter 5. Ezekiel, I want you to let the people know how they're going to pull their hair out later if they don't turn around and stop going down this path. You, son of man, son of dust, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, pass it over your hair, 
and over your beard until all of the hair comes off. Now, if you're shaving with a sword, this is not like a clean shave. We're talking cuts and bruises all over the place from an extremely sharp sword. All his hair has fallen into a pile. He says, now I want you to take the pile and I want you to weigh it until you have on a scale, until you have a third, a third, a third. Then in front of the people, I want you to use your own hair taken off your own body to demonstrate to the people how they're going to pull their hair out later if they keep going down this path. The first third, I want you to burn with fire in the midst of the city. Because if they keep going down this path, a siege is going to come from, from, from Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is coming back and he's going to literally burn a third of us. Think of that as Eco going... If we keep going down this path, one, two, dead, one, two, dead, one, two, dead, this is what's going to happen. And if you were observing Ezekiel's sermon that day, you wouldn't just observe it, you would smell it. Have you ever smelled burning hair? If you have, you remember it. It is one of the most horrific smells. And God is trying to, with all senses, show Tell, smell the consequences that are coming so that people will turn to you now while they still have a chance. I know exactly what burning hair smells like because I went to college. <laughs> and while I was in college, I sat in my dorm room typing away on my Texas Instrument word processor and I'd be in the middle of a paper my second year of college. And at least once a month, as I was typing a paper, there would be this smell. Oh, it began to fill up my entire dorm room. And I suddenly would hear this, this wicked laughter coming from the other side of the room. <laughs> Matt! I'd come around. He's got the cigarette lighter out. And he's burning all of his arm hairs just to fill the room with the stench of burning hair. And just because he thought it was hilarious. We did not stay roommates, if you can imagine. But I remember that smell. And it was horrible. I mean, it smelled of death. And God is using this smell of this first third of hair to try and warn people, this is what it's going to smell like, but it's not going to be theoretical. It's our friends. It's our neighbors. It's even going to be our family members. We are going to pull our hair out later, literally, if we don't pull this Huey now. The second third, I want you to take and strike with a sword. Take that pile and hit it with a sword because Nebuchadnezzar is coming back and now it's one to the sword. Every second person that wasn't killed the other way will be killed by sword. And then the other third, you're going to take that pile of hair and you're to scatter it and show that you're going to be dispersed all over the world. No more home, no more family, no more neighborhood. You're not going to have the comfort you currently have. If you don't turn around now, you're going to lose mourning. There's going to be death. There's going to be scattering. But before it all gets scattered, I want you to take a little bit of hair, just a little bit, and I want you to put it in the corner of your garment. And from that little small number... It's a reminder that God keeps his promises to the remnant. You are to bind them in the edge of your garment. And then people are like, oh, at least there's going to be somebody. Then take out of that little bit and scatter some of that. Throw them into the midst of the fire. Burn them in the fire. And from there, a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. This is not good. And it feels like, you know, this is, wow, this is angry God, judgmental God, Jesus shows up, sorry about my dad, God, kind of thing. But this is God being very gracious. Remember, he's waited 390 years. He said, guys, I'm telling you, 
your time is almost up. This is one more chance to turn around before you pull your hair out. And this practice that he has uh, Ezekiel demonstrate with the sword is because that's exactly what the Babylonians did. Think about in our country the idea of scalping your enemies, only this would be scraping your enemies. They'd be left alive. But you literally would come in when you dominated people, you would actually scrape off their hair to show domination through humiliation. And you would be carved up, scraped up, because you were walking behind the Babylonians on your way to their capital city, bald and cut up as a reminder that you had been taken captive, that you had been dominated by their enemy. We see this practice in the Bible as well. David one time sent a group of servants to go meet with a king to graciously say, hey, we'd like to interact with you. And, and the king, King Hunan, took David's servants, shaved off half their beard, just half, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. And now these poor guys have half a beard on their way home, humiliated, and they're wearing like a hospital gown because they can't quite cover themselves up on their way home. And this was a way that a foreign entity would show domination through humiliation. And God is saying, I don't want you to be dominated and humiliated, but it's coming if you don't pull a Yui here. So, how are you going to pull your hair out later? A third by sword, a third by fire, a third by scattering. There's still a chance. Now, why does Israel need to pull a Yui now? Why not go, ah, oh, we've been waiting 390 years. Why another, another year, another decade? Why do we need to pull a Yui now? And here's what he says. We move here from the how to the why. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, guys, this is Jerusalem. And I set Jerusalem in the midst of foreign nations and countries that are all around her. You ever wondered why the promised land is where it is? It's like, man, there's oil all over the Middle East. And God gives his people the one spot that doesn't have a lot of oil. Nice God, right? The reason God placed Jerusalem, look at the word he puts, I set Jerusalem in the place I did is because it is right in the commerce trail between Egypt and Babylon. Everyone's going to come through Jerusalem as they move from continent to continent. I specifically placed my people in a very specific place in history on the world stage. So as people pass by from all different nations and trade routes, they would say, man, have you seen this place? Look at how they treat the poor and the widow. Look at how they, 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 don't, they don't use the corners of their fields so that the poor can, they still have to work, but they can be provided for. Look at the kindness. Look at the compassion of their kings. Look at the way in which they rule using a different type of law that cares for people and loves people. And, and God set Jerusalem to be a visual aid to the world of God's kindness, of God's strength, of God's courage, of God's, God's compassion. So what God's going to say is the reason you need to pull a Yui now is I set you in the midst of foreign nations to be an example of who I am. And you've been an example. Oh, you've been an example. But not a good example. You've been a bad example. You're not fulfilling the purpose of being a visual aid of who I am. Look how he says it. Notice the phrase more than shows up several times. I set you in the midst. I purposely put you in the midst of nations who didn't believe in me. And she, Jerusalem, has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations. Not only is Babylon and Egypt and all the surrounding nations not inspired by what you're doing, they're more righteous than you are. Your wickedness is more than the other nations around you. And against my statutes, here it is again, 
more than the countries that are all around her. You've refused my judgments and have not walked in my statutes. This is pretty profound. Your wickedness over 390 years of my waiting has exceeded the nations you were supposed to be a visual aid to. To give you a sense of just how big Babylon is, if you look on the map, Babylon at this point has taken over in the first wave this area of Jerusalem here. And Babylon extends all the way through this area. And again, if you think about the trade route to where the promised land is, God designed it so people would come through here and discover what his law, what his way was like. But instead, these foreign nations are finding an area that's far worse than even they are. And that phrase more than comes up yet again in the next verse. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience, you're not just adding it. You're compound interesting your disobedience. It's bad stuff. You've multiplied disobedience, and here's the phrase again, more than the nations that are all around you. You've not walked in my statutes, you've not kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations all around you. Therefore, says the Lord God, this you do not want this said about you, I, even I, am against you. Man. For God to say, I'm against you. Let me jump to the New Testament for a second. Do you know who God says he opposes in the New Testament? The proud. So we all got a list of sins. Oh, let's talk about murder because I don't do that. Let's call it adultery because I don't do that. The worst sin that makes God's top seven list in the book of Proverbs, and the thing he says that he opposes is arrogance and pride. How open are you to feedback? How well do you take warnings? When you have a conversation with your spouse, with your boss, with a colleague, and they bring something up to you about yourself, is your instinct to get defensive? Dismiss the feedback? God says pride, the inability to be open, to be humble, to be teachable, In every area of your life, that is the kind of person that God opposes. You say, well, thank goodness I'm not like these people. Oh, my goodness. Maybe we're exactly like those people. And God's saying to you and I, you've got to pull a U. You've got to stop saying, well, I've always been this way. It's hard for me to apologize. It's hard for me to swallow my pride. It's not easy for me to take feedback. Yeah, that's called stubbornness. And God draws near to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And God doesn't want you to pull your hair out later because you know what pride does? It destroys families, it destroys marriages, it destroys companies. And God says, I want, because I love you enough, I'm trying to tell you now, do a U.E. in that area. Because otherwise you're going to pull your hair out later and you're going to lose things you deeply care about all because of your own pride. And I think what God's doing here is he says, I'm trying to create an environment where you can call out problems before I call out the consequences. And that's why you see God's grace in the midst of this. There's still time, but you've got to do it now. Time's running out. Let's create an environment to pull out the, the problems before I have to pull out the consequences. I saw the CEO of Ford speaking a couple weeks ago. Um, he's the one that did the, the former one who did the turnaround after uh, all the bankruptcy. And, and he was, uh, came in, his name's Alan uh, Mullally. 
he came in and in his first meeting, they were losing billions of dollars a year. Things were not going well. And he had a status report where all the different objectives and performance plans were set up for all the different team leaders and management. And they were rated green, yellow and red. Green, things are going well. All good. Yellow, there's a problem. We know about it, but we're not sure how to solve it yet. Red, it's bad. We don't know what it is and we haven't figured out how to solve it. He goes around the table. Guys, let's call it the problems. First month, first couple months on the job. Michigan area, all green. Fantastic. All right. Asia, all green. Start going around the world, all around the table. Green, 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 green. All green. As a new CEO, he says, huh. Guys, if it's all green all the time, why are we losing $20 billion a year? But there was a culture in the past that said, you don't call out your problems. The minute you say it's not green, you get fired. So you present the image that you're better than you are. So he turned to the guy, I think it was from Michigan. He says, now I know there's some problems there. Are you sure it's green? Well, we are having some problems here and here. Well, that sounds like yellow to me. Well, it is yellow. Well, tell us about that area. He says, well, we're having problems here and here. And the CEO, Alan, stepped in. He says, right, well, what can we all do to help with this? Well, you know, we got an engineer. We had a problem similar to that over in Minnesota. We could help out with that situation. Somebody from the Asia market said, you know, we could step in there. Uh, I think we know what that problem is, and I think we could get on that. And the team over the next week, because they called out the problems, were able to work on it and fix it. But everybody waited for the next meeting. Would he still be here next meeting? The guy who dared to bring out the chart that was no longer green. Because the culture had been, hide what you're doing wrong. Pretend there's nothing wrong. Right before the next meeting, Alan called up this particular rep or, or manager, uh, an executive, and said, Hey, next meeting, I want you, instead of sitting in your usual spot, I want you to come sit right next to me. So he came to the next meeting. They're looking over and the chair is empty. I knew it. I knew it. I'm never going to bring a yellow chart. And then they looked up the front. He's sitting right next to the CEO. And that began the culture shift to say, when you call out the truth, of what's going wrong, of what you're managing, you don't get farther from the CEO, you get closer to the CEO. And he discussed that was the way at which he wanted to call out the problems before the company had to call out the consequences. How do we create environments where we can bring this stuff to head before it's too late? Well, God is going to take one more swipe at this thing. Why do they need to pull a UE now? Because time is running out. And he's going to one more taste. Let me tell you what it's going to look like if you don't pull that Yui. What it's going to look like around here. And now we get to verse 10. <coughs> what will Israel's haircut be like? Sure, a third, a third, a third. But what's it really going to feel like if you're one of the people still living there? And he's just going to give a mental picture. He's going to paint a picture of what it's going to look like. He says, number one. If you keep going down the path you're going down financially, if you keep going down the path you're going down with your workaholism, if you keep going down the path you're going down not being able to acknowledge where you do, do wrong, if you keep going down the path you're going down not encouraging the people around you, it's going to be Hannibal Lecter time in Israel. Clarice. Hannibal Lecter time? What are you talking about? That's what he says. First thing that's going to happen with your haircut, cannibalism It's going to strike. Fathers will eat their sons in their midst, and sons will eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among you. No! 
He says, let me tell you, it's going to be like the movie Alive in the sense that there's so little food and so level, the, the starvation is going to be so bad, you're going to end up eating each other because there's nothing else to eat. To which they reply like we reply. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to affect my marriage. It's not going to affect my company. No, stop overreacting. Got to know this is what's going to happen. Remember a friend of mine had a dream of building this dream home up in New York. Talked about it for five years. Finally goes up to New York, builds, got this plot of land, builds this dream house. But because it's two hours from New York City where he works, he's driving the tra- taking the train in two hours one way every morning, working, coming back. You can imagine the wear and tear. But in order to pay for the house and, and, and keep up with his business, that was the, the, the track he ran on. After about three months, he moved to, you know what, this isn't working real well to get there and back every day. How about instead, I just stay in town, which is very typical in New York, and I'm just going to work Monday through Friday, and I'll be home on the weekends. So during that time, I talked to him, I said, but I'm really worried. I'm worried for your marriage. I'm worried for your family. I'm worried for your relationship. I know you love your son, your, your, your daughter. You've got a great relationship with her. I'm worried that what you're doing is eating away at your priorities. I'm worried that in building a house, you're destroying your home. Fast forward five years, just talked to him last week. He said, Chad, I just can't believe it. I've lost everything. My wife and I have just finished going through a divorce and it was horrific. We can barely even text each other to coordinate with the kids. My daughter... He said, came up to me last week with paperwork and she wants me to sign the paperwork that she can change her last name because she doesn't want my last name anymore. He said, I remember the warnings. I, I, I said it would never happen to me. And yet what I did and how I did it ate away at my marriage, ate away at my family. I said the whole time there were warnings. Oh, come on. Just, just, and you can do anything for a little bit of time, but it became the pattern. Cannibalism. We eat away at the things we care about. Number two. Deportation. All of you who remain are going to be scattered to the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and all your abominations, therefore I'm going to diminish you. Worse than that, you know what's worse than the deportation? is just in general the pain you're going to experience. It's going to be pain, pain, pain. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have any pity. One third of you will die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One third shall fall by the sword all around you. I'll scatter another third to the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. And what's worse than all of that is you're actually going to be separated from me. The source of comfort, the source of strength, the source of mercy. Thus shall my anger be spent. And I will cause my fury to rest upon them. And I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal, when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste, oh, a reproach, oh, among the nations that are around you, in the sight of all who pass by. And get this next verse. So it shall be that your life will be a reproach. It will be a taunt. Your life will be a lesson for other people. And you don't want your life to be a lesson for other people. We know people whose lives have been a lesson to us, don't we? And it will be astonishing to the other nations that I allowed this to happen to you. When I execute judgments among you in anger and fury and a furious rebukes. Look at that word rebuke. 
I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you, cut off the supply of your bread, and I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you, uh, bereave you, and, and pestilence and blood shall pass before you, and I will bring the sword against you, for I, the Lord, have spoken. And you're like, this is why I don't like the Old Testament. God's so angry. He's waited 390 years. That's not an angry God. That's a very patient. And even here, he's rebuking. Come on, guys. There's still a chance to pull a Yui now before this happens. I'm telling you this in great detail because I want you to not let that grief take over your life. Not let that depression take over your life. Not let that self-centeredness take over your life. You've got to act now before it eats away at the things that will destroy your heart toward me and others. Because God knows that there's something broken in us that has to be dealt with. I was invited to speak at a college campus last year. And as I did, it was a group of college students who were pretty much skeptical toward Christianity. And and they began to talk about, well, I can't believe in God because God's such an angry God. He's always doing such angry things. And I don't believe in a God who's angry. How would you answer that if you believe in the Bible? I said, well, let me tell you a story about somebody from our church. Uh, somebody from our church recently was, uh, was featured in, uh, in an article in, uh, in the newspaper in Cincinnati. And this person from our church actually was found taking a knife, and they took the knife and they plunged it into the chest of another member from our church. I was like, oh, what kind of church do you pastor? So it gets worse. He took that knife and he actually... Went from, from here to here, carved open this other guy in the church. And so then pulled back the skin where all the intestines were in there and actually poked around, pushed around in their, in their guts really for several hours before walking away. Like, what does that have to do with the answer to my question? I said, now, how do you feel about that person? Sounds like Hannibal Lecter. That sounds like a serial killer. I said, no, I'm talking about a surgeon in our church who is featured in a magazine who is pulling cancer out of somebody. And they took their scalpel and they curled from here to here, pulled them open and worked for hours inside of all the different places the cancer had gone to kill it, to remove it. And what looked initially like a serial killer turned out to be a surgeon who said, there's something so serious in here. I got to seriously do incredible extreme measures to get that out. Most of the time in the Old Testament, you think you got a serial killer and you got a surgeon. And God loves his people so much. He's like, guys, the stubbornness has become a cancer. The rebelliousness and pride has become a cancer. And it's eating away and taking over the whole body. Unless I do extreme measures here, paint a clear picture of what's happening, the cancer is consuming you. Pull a Yui now. Guys, men, women, dads, moms, you're going to pull your hair out later. If you're always controlled by fear, if you're always controlled by workaholism, if you make your kids more of a priority than your marriage, you may not see it now, but you're going to pull your hair out later when it comes to emptiness. So how do we respond to Ezekiel's call? How that haircut's going to look, why we should do it now, what it's really going to feel like if we don't do it. Well, I think the, the response to us is repentance. 
And that's what a U-turn is. That's what a U-E is. It's, it's repentance. You literally turn 180 degrees and go God's way. And so let me give you a little acronym that you can use to practice repentance in your own life daily. Aim for daily repentance. A-I-M. Aim. That every day, the practice of confession, the practice of repentance has got to be a regular discipline for us. A, I've got to admit I need grace. As a Christian, I need to remind myself I need grace for my past, my present, and my future wrongdoing. And why is this important? Because when you understand that in Christ there's no condemnation, that Christ has already forgiven my past, present, and future... When that really begins to sink into your head, sink into your thoughts, and sink into your hearts, you're able to bring out your secrets and bring out your wrongdoing because you know He's already forgiven you for it. In other words, you don't bring something out and go, I'm pretty self-centered in this area. And God's like, oh, shocking! This is shocking! I had no idea! No, you bring it out and God's like, yeah, I know. I know. And guess what? I already forgave you for it. So let's bring it out. Because it's a cancer that's still eating away at you. And in my grace, I've created a safe place to say it's yellow here. It's red here. And it's when you admit you need grace. Not like I need to pray one time. You need grace right now. You need grace tomorrow. It's in the context of grace you have the openness to bring out all of the things that are broken. Grace allows you to bring more and more out into the open. I'm not who I say, you know, my reputation is I look this way, but actually there's a lot of bad stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. And God loves you the same. And God wants to work in the midst of your chaos and works in the midst of your brokenness. And that's why the first step to confession is reminding yourself, I'm in grace. I'm operating in grace. There's no condemnation. Whatever's going on, admit I need grace. When I was in Alaska last year, um, for my daughter's graduation, we went to Alaska and we came across this uh, area where, where coal miners were. It's real fascinating because many people financed incredible debt to go to Alaska to, to do the gold rush. And now they didn't find gold and now they're in incredible debt back to the company or the bank. Well, there were lots and lots of cave-ins going on during that time as well. So many times you'd come across a cave-in where lots and lots of people had died and bodies sticking out. And so sometimes people who are in incredible debt would go digging in the rubble, pull out of the pocket or backpack of somebody else some papers of somebody who wasn't in debt. Oh. And since pretty much everybody in Alaska had a beard, who knows who's who, they would take their papers, stick in their papers. When the body was uncovered, they were declared dead. Therefore, their debts could not be collected. And they walked away with a new identity. Call me Ralph. With no debt. Now, without the deception, it's essentially what the message of Jesus is, is that we've accrued incredible debt toward God. And Jesus says, I'm going to willingly allow myself to die. And I'm going to willingly allow you to exchange your indebtedness papers to mine. So you can walk away as a free man, a free woman, no condemnation, no shame, new papers, new creation. And it's in that new identity I can begin to be honest about point two, I need to admit I need grace and I aim for daily repentance. I need to identify specific areas I'm out of God's will. Specific areas. So we have a tendency to sin specifically and repent generically. 
It goes like this. We do that with people and we do it with God. We are self-centered, we're critical, we're unthankful, we snapped at somebody. That's the specific way we were out of God's will. And then we say something like this. Well, I'm sorry if I did anything. God, if I did anything wrong, I just ask you to forgive me for today. Well, I'm sorry if you felt that way. Has that apology ever helped you? Has anyone ever said to you, I'm sorry you felt that way, and you went, oh, thank you, that feels so good? No, no, it doesn't. And the same thing with God. We sin specifically, and then we confess generically. It doesn't work. So part of the the discipline of repentance is saying, God, I want to rework through my day and say, God, oh my goodness, when I did that, I was putting something before you. Oh, God, when I did that, I was not using my tongue in an encouraging way. As you begin to do that, you're going to see the power of God's grace and the power of his, his work begin to take control of your life. His leadership takes over when we begin to admit specific areas that I'm out of God's will. Admit you need grace, identify specific areas you're out of God's will, and then thirdly, make adjustments to my heart. Oh my goodness, my heart was so going after comfort, not after you. It was all about my rights, not about reconciliation. You say, God, in light of my U-turn, what does it look like to have your thoughts, to have your feelings, to have your wants? God, I want to get close enough to your grace, and that's why you start with grace, that I want you to take control, and I want to make adjustments to my life and where I'm headed and where I'm going. In our exploring service, we have been uh, began a series last week tracking our thoughts. And so we gave people a bunch of these brains, and we're supposed to track thoughts of ways in which thoughts that are not God's are taking over your life. And so I had a couple of them that inspired me in, in, in light of this to try and make adjustments. One of the ones I found is my daughter called me, and she called in tears because of a thing going on, and I was right in the middle of working on my son's car. So he and I were working on it together. And I've got this thought... It comes up all the time that has served me well most of my life. And it says, I'm working on the car. My daughter needs help. Here's the thought. I can do both. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, wow, that sounds bad. Now, that thought serves me well in many areas. I caught that thought and went, no, no. I need to make an adjustment. Hold on one second. Everything in me wanted to finish this project. Sit down on the couch, and for the next half hour, I was really in the moment with my daughter. I made an adjustment, because God's beginning to show me how that thought that serves me in some areas needs to be kept captive in another. My son, 11.30 at night, says, Dad, can I take you out in my car and go for a drive? I'm so tired. When does my son ask me to go out in his car? So, sure, buddy. So we, about 11 o'clock, we get in the car, and, and, and we're going for, for a little test drive around the neighborhood, and, and we're heading out, and... And as I got in the car, my to-do list goes down, related to his car. You haven't got your tag yet. Uh, you still got to go get the license plate um, transferred from one to the other. And so as I get in the car, my other tendency is to say, what's next? Okay, now don't forget. Hey, before we get it, and I just stop. So, so, I, I need to be in the moment. We'll talk about the to-do list later. Don't miss the moment because of what's next. And that car ride was the same basic car ride, but I was in the moment with my son. I'll give you one more thought I caught this week. I was having a conversation with my wife, and we were having a disagreement. And the whole time she was talking, I was thinking, she's wrong, 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 she's wrong. Um, And therefore, I was defensive and angry. And instead, I caught that thought, so I need to make an adjustment here. She might be wrong, she might be wrong, she might be wrong. And that was one adjustment. And I went, I got a little more compassion, I'm a little less defensive. And as we're talking, I grabbed that thought, Captain, and I said, even if she's wrong, she needs me to enter her world right now. The best thing I can do is enter where she's at. And I was amazed how just those three thoughts 
allowed me to go from being defensive and angry to being the husband I need to be in that moment. It's about repentance. A, we admit. I, we identify. And M, we make adjustments to our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your grace in our life. Thank you for this challenge and reminder from Ezekiel that we are in a place that we can turn back to you. And we just ask that you go before us and convict us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.